Thank you all for tuning back into the show. Today, I have with me Dr. Daniel Halliday. He earned his PhD in philosophy from Stanford University in 2011. Dan is a senior lecturer here at the University of Melbourne. He works mainly on subjects relating to justice and political economy. He recently published a book with his co-author John Thrasher on the subject matter he covers in his second semester subject here at the University of Melbourne called The Ethics of Capitalism. The book goes by the same name. He also hosted a television series on ABC called Ethics Matters that featured, among other philosophers, the Ormond alumnus Peter Singer. If you're a student here at the university and you're looking for a subject to do this semester, I strongly recommend uh, The Ethics of Capitalism. I did it last year and it's not too late to change. You can change your enrollment up until Friday of the of the second week. So I strongly recommend that if you're on the fence about one of your other subjects, maybe you should consider changing to the ethics of capitalism. And hopefully this podcast will give you a little bit of a teaser as to the kinds of things that you'll run into in the subject. Of course, there's a lot more in the subject than we're able to touch on here. And of course, you go into a lot more depth. You can find Dan at danhalliday.net. And now I give you Dr. Daniel Halliday. Thanks so much for joining me today, Daniel. So you've recently released a book, The Ethics of Capitalism, uh, which is meant to be a kind of companion text for, you know, people looking to teach an introductory course on the subject. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I should say I co-authored it with, with my friend, yes, <laughs> John Thrasher. But yes, it's a, it's a, it's a cut and dried textbook. I mean, it's, it, we've, we've tried to write it so that it could be used I think primarily for introductory classes, but also for more advanced classes, you know, if, if there's going to be a inclusion of primary texts as well. But yes, that's about right. And if you're an interested member of the public, this is still something you could get into, couldn't you? That's the hope, yes. You may not want to do the study questions at the end of each uh, chapter, but yeah, we, we try to right. write it so that it's you know, easy to read and that it doesn't presuppose too much knowledge. So yeah. So I mean, I took your class last year. Mm. And the book was still being developed at that point. And I must say, though, I was very impressed with, you know, the, the class uh, It was really good and, and you did a great job of teaching it. So I'd like to heap that praise on you now. Well, that's very kind, that's very kind of you, Josh. Um, it was a lot of fun writing the book and, and teaching the material. And, and in many ways, writing this sort of material is more fun than, you know, writing conventional journal articles and, and you know, other kinds of books. So... I'm glad, I'm glad you enjoyed it too at the student end. Yeah, I think, yeah, you did a good job of remaining unbiased and, you know, introducing, you know, a lot of concepts in a way that, you know, stopped people from reflexively, you know, being against them necessarily, I think. You definitely opened my eyes up to a lot of problems that we have, especially with the current system. And uh, I think it was a very positive experience in that way great yeah well <laughs> you mentioned that we we're unbiased i mean 
hopefully that's true. But uh, one of the nice things about writing a textbook is you don't actually have to, you don't have to make up your own mind. You just have to sort of give, give an impression of, you know, the complexity of the debate and, or the complexity of the problem, perhaps in some cases, the shallowness of the debate. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But yeah, again, that's one of the nice things about, about writing this is that, well, we just have to kind of draw people's attention to what's interesting and, and what's challenging and what they might not have thought about don't have to try and persuade people of, of, of too much. Yeah, so I'd like to get into what you actually think maybe a little bit later on, but let's introduce some of these ideas first and then that'd be interesting because, I mean, I think because you were teaching this class, you probably weren't bringing too many of your views to the table in a lot of ways. And I want to know, now that you've thought about these various problems, what, what you think should be done, but maybe we'll get to that a little bit later sure, on. Sure, sure. Um, So one of the things that you introduce in the book is this Google search where you type in capitalism is and, you know, it it auto fills out, you know, a bunch of different things like dead, dying, bad, slavery. And since the outbreak of COVID, there's now the virus as well. Why do you think capitalism has all of these negative connotations latched onto it. Great. Yeah, that's a good place to start. And yes, you're right. You do get these autocompletes. They're a little bit different from computer to computer, and and they're a little bit different over time. When I first did this, the one that really stood out was capitalism is the root of all evil, which seems to have disappeared uh, in in recent searches. But yeah, what what these autocompletes are supposed to tell us is is what people generally think. I mean, I'm not not an expert on, on the internet, but they're supposed to be suggested because they reflect the kind of complete sentences or phrases that people have been putting into the search engines. So it looks like people, you know, capitalism's got a bit of a bad reputation or people tend to think of it negatively. And, you know, that, and that squares with a lot of the experiences that, that I was having and I, and I dare say most people have when they, you know, look for news stories on capitalism or when they just browse opinion pieces or when they just hear people talking on the radio or, or even in the street. And it might, it might help to say a little bit about the origins of the object. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's the book, which is what we're talking about. But the book really did evolve out of the, the class that, that I still teach uh, at Melbourne University, right? And it was really the book only exists because the class exists. The book kind of got written, well, the book kind of got conceived by accident. But I ended up teaching this, this class, The Ethics of Capitalism, right? same name as the book. And I thought, okay, it's time, you know, it's time we had a class on sort of economic justice. There wasn't really one in the university. Although I've been teaching political philosophy and practical ethics, there hadn't really been an economic focus in my teaching. And, and that was, I felt that was time to, to branch out a bit. And I started off just by, you know, before you took the class, there was no draft textbook, right? The first year or two, what I did is I just gave students, you know, primary sources. So I gave them material from Adam Smith and, and John Stuart Mill and other historical figures who still feature quite prominently in the book, along with a bunch of contemporary articles and, and, and chapters. I think that that's another really good element of the book is that it does give time to these original thinkers. And often, you know, you have, you know, the contemporary thinkers, but they don't tend to stick around. You know, the, the original thinkers will sort of always remain there in some sense and people will be riffing off their ideas. So I think it's always important to talk about them. Yeah, well, the, the original figures, or at least people like 
people like Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill were much were much more ambitious, and they were able to be more ambitious because they weren't you know, people like people like me, you know, who work in in universities. Nowadays, there's a much more pressure to be hyper specialized, which you know is one way of making mm-hmm. progress. Um, but it sort of affected teaching in a certain kind of way, and I wanted to sort of you know, do something a bit more well ambitious or a little, a little bit more sweeping in its scope. And so, yeah, you, you do go back to those old figures. But another reason for going back to the old figures is they actually liked capitalism. They, they actually thought this was worth defending morally. And it's fair to say they wouldn't be happy with how things have turned out. But in a way, that's the hook for the book. <laughs> well, one of the hooks for the book is people used to think capitalism had moral foundations. No one really thinks that now, at least not so far as the autocompletes would suggest. So what went wrong? You know, and, the, and the book is kind of an attempt to figure out, well, why did people like it? What can we learn from that? But in the- well, th- this leads into an- another interesting point, which is that you know free markets play a lot better than capitalism in people's minds, and so th- linking this back into the the origins of the word, mm. you know, Smith didn't come up with this word, did he? It was it was something that Marx used, and he used it in reference to a class of people. Yeah, that's absolutely the, the right. word capitalism really. I don't know if Marx was the very first person to use it, but he was certainly the person to popularise it. And at any rate, the word evolved out of opponents or, or, or critics of, of capitalism. Right. People like Smith and John Stuart Mill, they used to use phrases like commercial society. Uh, and they used to talk about markets. They didn't actually talk about free markets. Um, and that's an important point too. Um, but yeah, the the origins of the defense of capitalism were very much grounded, or capitalism as we would now call it, very much grounded in um, concerns about you know, feudalism and, and, and the, the history of economic orders rather than you know, contemporary or, or 20th century socialism. That, that's an important point uh, to emphasize. But um, as I said, the, the book sort of evolved out of the, the course, right? And so I, I did just give students these primary sources, but you know, it's, it's fair to say that these are fairly heavy going texts. Um, John Stuart Mill's Principles of Political Economy, it's about 800 pages. It's got these huge digressions on the price of wool in 19th century Lancashire. It's kind of interesting, yeah, yeah. but it's it's not really getting getting to the... Smith does a bit of that oh, too. Yeah, there's yeah. a long digression on silver early in the book. And look, it's not as if they're not worth reading, but you know, students got other things to do with their lives. <laughs> They've yeah. at least got other subjects they've got to write essays for. So the point of a textbook is to be a kind of gateway drug, if I can use that phrase. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, sure. You know, the hard stuff is the primary text, and we hope that students you know, or, or readers will go on and look at them. But anyway, in the early days, I was giving folks these primary texts, and people were, you know, the average student, and I mean, I don't mean that not in a disrespectful way, the average student who's got a lot of things going on in their life, which is fair enough, was sort of struggling a bit to get through this. So I was writing these long handouts, you know, which I'd, which I'd give out one, once per lecture. And these handouts were getting to be sort of four or five pages long. And it just occurred to me that, look, this is all, I've got enough handout, but the handout material has now grown large enough that you could sort of staple it all together and call it a book. Um, so I thought, well, you know, maybe, maybe that's actually what should be done. There wasn't a textbook out there because I'd looked for it. It wasn't one that really suited my ambitions for the class. So I thought, well, why not give it, give it a crack and, and write something? And I thought, well, look, I can't really do this on my own, really, because I don't, I don't really know enough. I mean, the, the class at the time was sort of fine for you know, a one-off class at, at Melbourne Uni, but 
to, to get a textbook that would work for lots of different classes at lots of places, which of course is what you need to do to, to, to get a marketable textbook. I wanted a bit more expertise on it. So I went to see John, John Thrasher, who was, he was working at Monash at the time. He's since gone back to America, but he was working at Monash. He's got a different background from me. He knows a bit more economics for, for sure. I said, look, John, do you want to, you know, do you want to have a, have a crack at this? I mean, I've already put in some of the mileage with this class. And he just, sort of, he just said, yeah, let's, let's have a go. So that was it. Uh, we just sort of got on with it. And, you know, wrote most of the book in a relatively short period. Uh, wrote most of the book in about one sem about period of a few months. And I think 20, would have been 2017. For one, you know, for one semester, I was sort of getting up at five in the morning, driving into the office, doing two or three hours of work on the, on the textbook and then sort of going into the normal work day. Um, so we, 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 you know, banged out a draft pretty quickly. And then it was just, as is the case with academic publishing, it was then a few more years of refinements, referee reports, you know, sharing it around some of our friends and colleagues. But yeah, the book, the book occurred because I tried to teach without a textbook and decided one was needed and that I was sort of writing one by accident with these handouts. So I never would have planned to write a textbook. In fact, it's a little bit narcissistic. When, you know, to, to think that, oh, I'm going to write the book that the right. yeah. you know, it's normally what some, something that people do later in their careers, you know, yeah. but, yeah. but in the end, I guess the market, <laughs> the market had a gap in it and the market finds a way. Yeah. Well, that's it. Yeah. I'd like to get to that too. Mm. So, I mean, because, you know, talking of, you know, how ambitious people were, I mean, Hayek sort of brought a little bit more ambition in, into it again, right? Hayek, yeah, he's an interesting guy. Um, Hayek was, I see Hayek as a sort of descendant of Smith, trying to bring a bit more systematicity and precision to Smith's work. So Smith's famous for talking about the invisible hand. I don't like metaphors very much because, well, from a philosophical point of view, metaphors are problematic because they're never true, right? I mean, there is no hand, invisible or otherwise. Right. So with, with Smith said, oh, there's this invisible hand driving the markets or driving prosperity. And and you know that's been influential and there was some there was some truth in it but it was really Hayek who began to put together something less metaphorical when he talked about spontaneous order right and the idea that look markets are he or he thought markets are superior to governments when it comes to producing a wide variety of goods and services because while on the one hand governments need to sort of centralize all the information and sort of plan things from the top down Markets allow every, no one knows everything, but everyone knows something and everyone just kind of responds to their local facts about supply and demand. And that it's the price system that moves the information around. And it's almost a bit like a language. You know, no one really invented the English language or any other language. It is still a product of human action. It does still, but it, but it still solves problems, problems of cooperation without anyone being in control and frankly there would be no point that you wouldn't improve it by trying to take control of it now Hayek thought or can be read as thinking that markets are a little bit like that and that's the invisible hand thing it's the idea that there's order people are responding you know people are following rules but there's no one sort of in control and that's more satisfying it's less metaphorical doesn't mean it's completely right I mean there's all sorts of differences between markets and natural languages and that's something we talk about some length right book. but it's progress yeah, um, I, I think it is very fair to, to, you know, his characterization of it and to describe it as a kind of collective intelligence. Yeah. Yes, I think that's how he would, that, that would be, a, a, I mean, Hayek went on to say some more controversial things later in his career. I mean, all, the, all this stuff about spontaneous order was actually quite earlier in his career. I don't like his later career work 
much. Right. Uh, I don't know if Thrasher would agree with that, but um, you know, it's, it's really that one paper from the 1940s um, about the use of knowledge in society. Uh, you know, that really, that really um, makes this point quite well and quite quickly and in, in ways that you know, are quite accessible really to students. Yeah. So something that I, I see coming up uh, again and again is this idea of, um, well, there are a lot of sort of confusing things, you know, the terms, you know, get used by everybody in, in different ways. You know, I mean, some of the most abused words, I think, or perhaps if you're a linguist, you might like the fact that, you know, they have so many different meanings attached to them. I'm not sure. But, you know, you try to clarify this with, this logical space of the triangle and i might try and you know link to an image of that um in the description of the podcast yeah could you talk a little bit about the triangle yeah so why why are we talking about triangles in the first place well um triangles are two-dimensional shapes <laughs> um, and the, the point of a two-dimensional shape is to get away from the the one-dimensional thinking of well, capitalism and socialism as being the kind of, kind of exhaustive of, of, of the options, right? And that, that's very much parallel to thinking in terms of left wing and, and, and right wing. Right? We're always hearing talk about the left and the right and you know, capitalism and socialism. And we wanted to really discourage this in the book because it, it really oversimplifies things. Isn't it? Right, yeah, it's, it's horribly reductive to everybody involved. Well, it just confuse. I mean, at the very least, it... it obscures certain certain possibilities so the triangle is a way of the triangle is a way of mapping out logical space by logical space we just mean the range of possible logically possible arrangements when it comes to you know economic systems the triangle is a way of emphasizing that look there's really three extremes instead of that on the line there's two extremes capitalism and socialism on the one-dimensional picture uh, but we think there's capitalism socialism and, and feudalism right and you can sort of these are the three points of the triangle, yeah? And you can sort of um, conceptualize the range of possibilities in terms of, you know, the actual socioeconomic status quo, right? the way things actually are in, in some country or region at some time is some kind of hodgepodge of, or is very often some kind of hodgepodge of feudalism, socialist and, and capitalist elements, right? Now it, it, it might tend towards one of the corners. In fact, you know, you look at medieval Europe, it was almost, it was feudalist. Yeah. There was a little bit of capitalism going on insofar as there was some effort to promote markets, but it was feudalist. You look at, um, you know, Soviet Russia, well, you're going to call it socialist because the state controlled the, the economy. It doesn't mean that it was actually as, you know, pr pr proponents of socialism are going to argue that wasn't the idea. Well, Karl Marx wasn't really trying to persuade us to, to adopt, you know, Stalinist Russia, and that's, and that's absolutely right. But that's further reason to, to recognise a, a deeper point here, which is that the way things are, or what we might call the socioeconomic status quo, isn't usually just one system. It isn't just some carefully crafted uh, system that is compliant with just one of these sort of idealizations. Um, so a very closely connected point, and which is one of the more central points of the book, at least early on, is that we, there's a tendency for us to use the word capitalism just to refer to the status quo. At least in countries yeah. like Australia, uh, those in Western Europe, North America, you know, J Japan, South Korea, we all think of these as capitalist countries, but they're all kind of different from each other. They, they really are. Um, and they've all got rather different histories from, from each other. And a lot of the economic status quo is a, is a, a hangover from the past. 
Now, on reflection, this shouldn't really be that controversial, you know. Um, but nonetheless, we, we tend to just say, oh, you know, capitalism is running things in these countries, or these countries are capitalists, without pausing to, to reflect and think about, well, hang on a minute, might, might these countries differ insofar as they're actually different combinations, even if they sort of lean towards the capitalist extreme? Is it really so? Is it really right to say that they are just capitalists? And that the book, and this is one, one area where the book does actually come down with a quite explicit opinion, is that no, we shouldn't. They really are a bit of a, bit of a mixture. Um, you know, the, U the UK, where I'm from, you know, big feudal history there. I mean, you still got a hereditary monarchy which owns a chunk of the land. Right, and and the House of Lords is that still? Do you still have to be a lord to? You have to be a lord to be in it, but you don't have to be born, yeah. have to be born a lord anymore. Well, you never did. You'd always okay. get made. I mean, the lords right, somewhere. Right. Um, uh, but um, yeah, the, the the hereditary peerage system, as it as it was called, got wound mm -hmm. down in the nineteen nineties. It was one of the more controversial. Well, it was one of the sort of the um, the flagship policies of, of Tony Blair's. Uh, Mm -hmm. period as prime minister um but it's still unelected so i mean the lords works a little bit like the senate in australia or indeed the senate in the usa where, where it's a sort of upper chamber and the lower house puts up legislation and the upper house kind of does stuff to it and sometimes rejects it but in britain it's unelected it's still it's not her membership is no longer primarily hereditary you, you sort of get into it well it's unclear how you get into it you, officially you get into it by having you know performed a a life of public service such that you're selected but there's always question marks about who gets in there um, mm -hmm. but in a way you know if you want to see legacies of feudalism that they're actually there's some much more straightforward examples of that um things like inherited wealth uh mm -hmm. so yeah i want to talk to you about this as well because google has told me that you had a book on inherited wealth not too long before uh, this book came out. Is that yeah, right? that's right. Google's Google's right about that. <laughs> um, yes, I did write a book about it, about inheritance um, a couple of years. Well, I think it came out in twenty eighteen. Again, it, it took a few years to write, such as the, the nature of the process. Yeah. Was was that your gateway drug into this area a little bit? <laughs> um, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, inheritance does come up in the ethics of capitalism, right? I mean, and it's interesting because inheritance is is something that influences the distribution of wealth. But it's not part of the market. It's got nothing really to do with it. It's outside of the market. You know, it's not like the distribution of income or, or you know, how much stuff costs. It's, it's just mm -hmm. wealth moving around in this sort of asymmetric parent to child or, or parent to you know, other kind of friend or, or relative. Um, and one thing that one, one way in which it is a gateway, I suppose, is, is that, look, we all think that, that, that inheritance has some significance when it comes to you know, distributive justice. And as we all agree, I think there's a serious question about you know, how fair is inheritance. Whatever our actual answer to that question is, it's a, it's a serious question. But if you think that, that inheritance or the, you know, the unequal distribution of inheritance is unjust, it's very strange to blame that on capitalism because it's got nothing to do with markets. But it's, it's actually yeah. a, lot, a, a big parallel with feudalism uh, in medieval Europe, because that feudalism was a system in which inheritance basically settled the question of how you were going to get on in life. Yeah. And uh, I think, you know, one of the biggest critiques today is, is that it, it still does because of things like private schools and, and, and sort of other institutions that have, you know, maybe starting to look a little bit more feudal uh, in recent years than they did before. Yeah. So this might be a good way to transition into talking about 
positional goods or private uh, education or something along those lines? What, what do you think, where, which direction do you think we should head in? Yeah, well, I'll say a few words about private education is a tricky one. Well, first of all, private edu- education is, private education is the sale of educational resources in the market, broadly mm-hmm. speaking. So it is part of the market. Um, and, you know, this is tricky because in a country like, in a country like Britain, where I'm from, there aren't many private schools. So there's a, they, they account for a much smaller fraction of the, um, well, the, the, pop, the population who's privately educated is smaller than in Australia, put it, put it that way. So okay. yep. for, for that reason alone, there's a bit more of a tendency of private education to be the sort of domain of the, of the real elite in Britain. Plus, the, you know, plus um, I mean, Australia is a very old country, but with regard to the settler community here, it's, it's been around less long than, than, than the British community. So private education, how, how we think of it in terms of perpetuating things like class hierarchy, it's going to depend on the specifics of the country. One thing you might say about private education in Australia is, well, it's a way for immigrants to sort of catch up. Right? I mean, this is an argument that might actually be, I'm not saying it's right, but one argument you might make about Australia is that, look, if someone migrates here and they don't, they don't own property, they're not going to inherit anything, putting their kid through private education might seem to them like a way of, you know, giving their kid something comparable to what the you know, the, the local, the, the kids who are already here have got in terms of, you know, inheriting a house in, you know, an inner Melbourne or an inner Sydney suburb. So it's actually, what we say about private education in isolation, well, it's hard to say something in isolation from the specifics of the socioeconomic status quo. That's just a kind of, you know, qualification. Nonetheless, there is this influential argument that we discuss in the book, and which is quite popular among political philosophers, that private education is unjust to the extent that you are purchasing advantage for your kid over other kids whose parents don't have that kind of resource, who you know, aren't in a position yeah. to pay for private school. And that's not fair. Um, it's not fair that, you know, what, what that educational advantage, which should be distributed meritocratically, is distributed instead by the market. Right? So, so one view is that markets shouldn't be the mechanism through which those goods are pursued. And you asked about the positional good. Well, you know, the idea of a positional good is really just embedded in, in, in what I said, which is that you've got a positional good when you know your the value of your share is dependent on what other people's shares are like, right? So the value of the food in my fridge, you know, in terms of the benefit it gives to me, it doesn't really matter what's in other people's fridges. Okay, you know, my my orange juice is tasty regardless of what anyone else has got in terms of orange juice or any other kind of food. How good are my high school grades or, or my degree classification or whatnot, educational credentials? Well, that really does depend on what position they give me in the ranking of my peer group. Yeah. Hence positional good, right? The, 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 it's good for you insofar as it gives you better position. And a lot of goods are like that. Education isn't the only one, but education is a pretty important one because the quality of your education in terms of the, the position you get in the ranking is going to affect things like access to university, and it's going to affect things like labor, how competitive you are in the labor market. And for most of us, those are really, really crucial things. And you might mm-hmm. think it's not fair that, you know, how, how wealthy your parents are has, has any real, should have any real bearing on your chances of, of getting a good, a good position in the ranking. That's the influential argument. But it is complicated. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> okay. So this is sort of. Um, do you think that 
private property as we conceive of it, you know, in the current context and the status quo is also to some extent, you know, a hangover from feudalism? That's a great question. Um, so feudalism is unlike socialism in that property is privately held, right? Under, under socialism, the idea is property or at least productive property, things like, you know, factories and industries is state owned and, you know, controlled by the state. Is private property, what well, I think capitalism, or at least you know, the early the early era defensive market society, you know, like Adam Smith, the, the, the objection wasn't really to private property being a thing in feudalism. The objection was to it being concentrated so that you know all of the assets, the land and the industry, there wasn't much industry then, but all of the all of the productive assets, the assets that can sort of you know generate an income, are owned by a tiny elite, the monarchy, the nobility, maybe the church. Um, and so people like Smith wanted to see, you know, land ownership disperse, right? So that everyone, everyone, or, you know, most people could own enough land so that they could, you know, generate their own income off it. So really he was about, you know, emancipating the peasants. The, the peasants who work the land shouldn't, shouldn't be uh, under the control of the landowner or the aristocrat, they should own their own land. And, or if not, if they don't own it, they should at least be entitled to its output. So, that, that's a that's a pre-industrial view, right? That's a view that's been formulated when land ownership really was, you know, when land was the primary asset. The industrial yeah, I've heard something similar from, you know, Locke. I think that you know the idea is is that if you're working on the land, you should own it, and therefore you have an incentive to improve it. Also, yeah, yeah, there there are parallels there. Locke's even older than Smith, so again, again, pre-industrial. Locke, Locke's views are a lot less um, elaborate than Smith's. I would say we don't actually teach a whole lot of we don't put a whole lot of lock in the in the book really. Also, there's also a bit of a problem about there's a there's a nasty history of Locke's views being used to to justify colonial colonial acquisition, um, mm, and yeah. it's not entirely clear whether whether his views are being misappropriated there or just properly applied. Um, although okay. I, I will say for for Smith, it's actually very hard. Smith was a real opponent of colonialism, um, yeah. very very effective opponent. Uh, and, and it's very, very hard to find, you know, a racist remark in, in his writings, which is really saying something for an 18th century. Well, it wasn't English, he was Scottish, and that perhaps makes a difference. But uh, it's, you know, one, one reason we like to teach him is although he was defending markets, he wasn't, he was defending markets as an alternative. On moral grounds. Yeah, and, and as an alternative to, to, to the colonialism as he knew it at the time. And he, and he lived a little bit before the British Empire really reached its peak. But people were certainly, you know, helping them settlers or colonialists were certainly helping themselves forcibly to to land in, in Australia and North America at, at the, and elsewhere at the time of his writing. I'm digressing a little bit now. You were asking about yeah, private, yeah, property. Uh, um, private property. So for Smith and, and arguably for, you know, any inheritor of his views, private property is a good thing if it's spread around, right? Because it mm. gives you a bit of independence. Most of us, um, you know, own, owning your own home, and this is going to be controversial, but you know, a lot of us feel in Australia and elsewhere that owning your own home is a good thing if you can get it. Mm -hmm. and it. And it does protect you against a lot. You know, if you're renting a home the whole time, you're vulnerable to being turfed out, you know, or being kicked out. Um, you know, you don't have control over just the, the sheer infrastructure, you get permission before you do anything to the property. Um, so, you know, you might, you might think that just ownership is a good thing for, for the, you know, the average person when it comes to assets like like land and, and housing 
There's a further question though about, you know, when we say private property, do we really care about productive property or, or unproductive property? Now, houses are sort of unproductive in the sense that they don't generate an output, okay? You can argue that they're productive insofar as they allow someone to live there who can then go and do some work, right? But they don't. Right, and raise yeah, children. Yeah. And, and Ultimately, yeah. they are productive in a kind of roundabout way, but they don't generate any, they don't, but living in a house is not like owning a, a factory or a business where the, the purpose of that entity is to, is to generate a return, or if not the purpose, one of the primary features of it. Of course, you can own a home and rent it out to someone else, and we can get into, we, 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 do, we can and should get into a debate, especially in Australia, about how that's being managed. Um, but is private property a bad thing? Well, Smith is going to say, no, it's a good thing, but has to be dispersed. If it's not dispersed, if it's concentrated in, as per feudalism, you're going to get status hierarchy, domination, all kinds of unpleasant stuff, and actually not a lot of production. Mm -hmm. so that's, that's the sort of answer that I, you know, I think that's still quite a good answer to the question of how yeah. should we feel broadly about private property. There's room for lots of disagreement and further reflection on more specific questions you know, that come up with regard to particular types of property or particular types of assets. Yeah, okay, so in the, on this vein a little bit, maybe it'd be good to talk about, you know, some of the reasons why private property seems to be concentrated in our system a little bit more than, you know, Smith might have envisioned, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, we have these massive corporations that, you know, they are probably, you know, I mean, relative to maybe, you know, during his time, the, the British East India Company, they're probably small as a percentage of GDP still, but, you know, um, they are quite large, right? And they're not like the pin factory that he imagines in the division of labor. Yeah. Um, so what economic forces are driving uh, the, the the reality of large companies. So great. Um, well, you, you sort of half answered the question in a way. I mean, it's a great question. Why? What? What Adam Smith didn't see coming was the Industrial Revolution. It only really got going just after his book, Wealth of Nations, that is uh, appeared in in the seventeen seventies. Um, and one one thing the Industrial Revolution taught us is that there's a tendency for large hierarchical firms to persist. And Smith thought this wouldn't happen because Smith thought, who really wants to work for a firm and be bossed around when you could work for yourself, right? I mean, working for a firm, he thought, well, that's a bit like being a peasant. It's not as bad, but it's being in, 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 in a hierarchy and, you know, um, being told what to do and, and not owning straightforwardly all of the output of, of the product and um, of the process. And of course, Karl Marx kind of went with that. Karl Marx, by the way, really quite a descendant of Smith in lots of ways, okay? Just updating the perspective because the Industrial Revolution has happened by the time Karl Marx is writing and he's able to, you know, work that into his, his reflections on mm -hmm. capitalism. But yeah, what, one thing that happened that wasn't anticipated was this, this tendency of big firms to, to dominate, or if not dominate, at least in certain industries for, for big firms to be the norm. It's actually, you know, the, the restaurant industry isn't really like the groceries industry. So yeah. It does depend a little bit on what's being produced and whether whether the economies of scale, whether production is really subject to economies of scale, which will work in favour of big firms. And actually, frankly, whether production is intimately related to large hierarchies and people bossing other people around. Um, yeah, and then there's just some goods and services that, that, that just don't, like a university, 
university is still a firm, okay? A firm is just any employer. Um, the Catholic Church is a firm, right? Um, things like universities and churches, they, they, they sort of make more sense when they're big. Um, I mean, you, you can't set up a university like a milk bar on, on, on the, legally you could, right? You could get the, the right to issue degrees if you tried hard enough, but it wouldn't really be a university as we know it. Some services are sort of consumed in such a way that there's lots of people giving you lots of different things you want, right. and there's lots of other consumers with whom you're sort of sharing the consumption. Anyway, long story short, this, this was not anticipated. This became clear uh, as the Industrial Revolution took hold, but it wasn't anticipated. And I think one of the theoretical upshots of this is that we need to temper, if not, we need to revisit some of Smith's optimism about markets, because he thought markets were going to you know, turn society from a nation of peasants into, well, the phrase is a nation of shopkeepers or you know, a nation of self-employed individuals. And they didn't do that. Labor markets didn't work that way. And a lot of jobs in firms are less desirable. There's room for a debate about this. I mean, not everyone wants to be a shopkeeper in the first place. No one wants to be a peasant, and not everyone wants to be a shopkeeper either. So there's room for a debate about, about how, how bad it is for people to be working in firms. Um, but when firms are not so bad, that's usually because that's partly because of the labor law has you know, made sure made sure that they're not nasty places to work, which they largely were in the, in the 19th century when Marx and Mill were writing. Uh, yeah, so I think that the, the big thing is that um, hierarchical firms were not anticipated. Mm -hmm. And so this leads into coats uh, and transactions, costs right? Yeah, and and natural monopolies, I guess. Yeah, so so and um, I'd say in sort of more recent history with the big tech platforms, it's like you know it's network effects, and you know once you have a certain number of people you attract even more people and it's very hard to you know start a competitor because mm -hmm. you know nobody's on that other platform mm -hmm. so that that's enough i think those are maybe three different ways that you know we're driving towards large entities what do you think about well those? large in a sense um and large in probably a problematic way but it is worth emphasizing that um you know the enthusiasm that some people have for, for things like, well, they call it platform capitalism. But, you know, might not, might hesitate a bit before we use that word, but the enthusiasm that people have is partly Smithian in nature, right? Because the, the thought goes that these, um, you know, these, these these tech firms, they're firms, but a lot of people sell their labour through them on what is supposed to be a freelance basis. Um, now that is that, that that is very much up for debate whether that's what what's going on, but there's a big difference nonetheless between working, selling your labor through some sort of digital platform and working for an old fashioned you know, pre-internet, if you like, firm. There is a bit of a difference in terms of the hierarchy. It's still big, as you emphasized. And you know, the, the digital economy is still subject to economies of scale, right? Or network effects, whereby you, know, you need a critical mass of participants before you're really competing, before you really you know, got staying power. Um, but they're not really like workplaces either. So there's this debate now about, well, what, what's, when is someone working for a firm such that they're employed and when are they merely just dealing with a firm? You know? So if I'm a freelance plumber, I might go and fix the pipes in a firm. I might go and fix the pipes in a hotel or something. It doesn't mean I work for that hotel. I mean, in a sense, I work for that hotel. I sell my labor to that hotel, but I'm not an employee of that hotel. I'm a freelancer, and that's why the hotel can't just sort of boss me around. They can say, look, you know, do this and we'll pay you, but they can't order me around and they might order, you know, some of their own staff. 
but the lines about this have been really blurred by by these digital platforms. Um, and this this one of the, the interesting debates that we need to have in the 21st century that again was not anticipated, or even in the 20th century, is you know what 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 is the concept of employment? Uh, what why where do we draw the line between someone who's working for themselves and someone who's working for someone else? And in drawing that line, what kind of difference is it going to make to people's entitlements? And what kind of injustice is being done if we draw the line in the wrong place? And these are all questions that we're yet to properly answer in Australia and, and elsewhere. Yeah. Um, because if we don't do them quite right, then there's going to be room to exploit the margins. There. Well, what we need is, is a sort of theory of, you know, what, what we try and do in, in political economy is come up with a theory of, of justice for the market. I mean, the market mm -hmm. is not quite what people have expected it to be uh, in, in the past. And what the, the evolution of the market has been driven partly by how we've chosen to regulate it. Um, you know, people like Adam Smith were really optimistic, but you know, the, that optimism was to some degree misplaced and as a result calls for some kind of regulation. Uh, markets are gonna create winners and losers at the best of times, but they're gonna be subject to these kinds of, you know, perversities or questions about, well, what's really going on here? And a lot of the substance of this book, you know, the, ethic, the ethics of capitalism is about working out, well, what do we actually do when we're, when we're confronted with these actual realities? What kind of theory can we draw on that, that will tell us how to make, you know, how to regulate the market so that we do harness its productive potential. And in some cases, it's, emancip it's emancipatory potential without drifting back into something like feudalism, where there's, you know, hierarchy and domination and lack of opportunity for people to, to get ahead. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think that, you know, we've talked about some of the the, the problems that, that, you know, are present in the status quo. And maybe it, it might be good to just lay one more thing out. So, I, th there's something that interests, interesting that certain different people have identified, which is that something you know, went on from the end of the Second World War until about the early 70s that was, you know, it was this massive explosion in prosperity. And coinciding with that was, you know, also a decline in wealth inequality. And then something seems to go wrong, you know, in the early 70s and growth slows down and inequality at least in the West, starts to increase. And, you know, th there are some things that I think about with this. So, you know, during the, the 20th century, you have massive technological progress in sort of the first half. And, and it's very obvious, you know, you have the widespread adoption of cars, electric appliances, um, you know, uh, plastics, uh, air, you know, planes, and then, you know, after the 70s onwards, you sort of have incremental improvements to those technologies. But the only really new technology after that is, you know, computers, it seems like, or, or, and variations on that theme. And so I was wondering, you know, do you have any ideas around what went wrong in the early 70s? H have we stagnated, uh, you know, intellectually in some kind of fashion? Um, yeah, that, that's a that's a good point. Um, and yeah, people do make this observation quite often that things seem to slow down 
uh, since, well, between 1945 and 1970, there, there was this, well, at least between 1960 and 1970, things were, were pretty good. There's a bit of variation from country to country. But yes, wage stagnation, as it's often called, has become fairly normal. Um, and it's come to Australia as well, although a little bit later than, than uh, some of the other countries um, that you might have in mind. What went wrong? Um, that's, I, I don't really have, I mean, the, the only answer I'd give is the one I've picked up from others, which is that, well, you know, wage, wage growth slowed. It's unclear what caused it to slow, um, but, you know, willingness to tax wealth, inheritance and so on, perhaps made it the case that, you know, people are going to invest in things like houses so they can extract wealth from renters, perhaps more than in, in companies. Um, I really, I mean, I'm really sort of making this up as I go along. Uh, um, but in a way, the philosophical question might be, well, what was it that went wrong? Was it the slowdown or was it how we responded to the slowdown? Okay. John, right. John Stuart Mill's got this nice little chapter in his Principles of Political Economy on the stationary state. Okay. And the idea here is roughly like this. Why, why do we care about economic growth? Well, we tend to care about it because we think it's linked to wage growth and low unemployment, which, you know, to, in, large, in large part it is. Uh, and maybe technological progress. And, yes. and, you know, perhaps we've tied it into the idea of progress. Yes, I suppose, I suppose we have. And, and it's also true, as you noted, that, you know, while there were all these technological developments in the sort of early to mid 20th century, since 1970s, we've had computer development. We've also had a bit in pharmaceuticals. And in fact, right now, as we're talking, we're hoping that they're getting closer to this, this COVID vaccine. And, you know, that, that, that sort of stuff, cancer treatment, for example, has really, has really come along. Um, yeah, I, I, it is worth saying biology and computer science are really the ones that have been chugging forward. I, I yeah. Think, yeah. But outside of that, it's less easy to identify. But, you know, the, the thought in John Stuart Mill was that, well, we don't, why do we, why do we care about growth? Because we care about jobs um, and incomes. But don't, aren't we, Mill thought that we're going to re reach a stage, or, you know, market economies are going to reach a stage where they've kind of produced most of the stuff they've got to produce. You know, everyone's mm -hmm. got enough to eat. I'm not saying everyone has in fact got enough to eat, but look, things are a lot better than they were when he was writing in the 19th century. And the thought, the thought might be, we'll reach a stage where low growth isn't such a bad thing because we can all just stop working as much. You know, maybe the people who are, you know, got all the ideas in, in tech and in pharmaceuticals can keep going. But maybe when we've got slow economic growth, that's just a sign that we've picked all the low hanging fruit. And now we should just enjoy the possibility of taking our foot off the gas and having more leisure time. That's actually what he said. Now, why has that not happened? Well, the reason it's not happened isn't that not enough wealth has been produced. It's that your way of getting a share of it is still through the labor market. Okay. So we, mm -hmm. People still have to, there's, there's a lot of wealth in society, at least in Australia, there's a lot of wealth here. There's plenty of food, there's plenty of housing. Okay, there's enough cars. Um, hopefully soon mm -hmm. there's going to be enough corona vaccine. Um, there's a lot of stuff compared to the 19th century when markets were seen as this, this way of getting people out of abject poverty. Um, the problem with Australia is more about distribution than production. And Mill said this, he said, look, there's a distinction between production problems and distribution problems. And we might reach a stage where we're going to solve the production problem before the distribution one. The distribution one's going to linger because we need to, we can produce enough stuff and then we've got to find a way of doling, you know, sharing it out. But if everyone gets their share by selling labor, it's almost as if we're pretending we still got to solve the production problem. 
Yeah, okay, that that's that's interesting. And and it sort of ties into this, you know, the Kane's prediction of the fifteen hour work week. Yeah. That, very similar. Know, at, very similar. And the the yeah. reason that the reason we haven't got a fifteen hour work week is because the regulation of the economy still basically says if you don't have independent wealth, if you don't inherit something, you only get money if you work for it. So proponents of you know schemes like basic income are actually can can be there's lots of different ways of coming at these proposals and trying to defend them but one way of defending them is, is actually to make this million point to say that look there's enough to go around now not everyone has to work the whole time those those who want to can and perhaps there should still be some incentive right to get people to to do the certain kinds of work that still have this product this important payoff like you know like vaccine research but look you don't have there's enough to go around let's just let everyone have some share of the wealth that's enough to keep you going and not require them to work. But we haven't done that. Um, we're sort of doing it a little bit under the pandemic, right, with the, 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 the JobKeeper scheme in Australia, and which is a bit like basic mm-hmm. income. It's not quite basic income because not everyone gets it. Um, Although the people who are on, on unemployment, a lot of them are getting extra supplements yeah, as are. well. So it will be an interesting case study to see what has gone on during this period. Yeah. I mean, obviously, people like the whole point is is that people can't work, but it'll be interesting to see well, what have people been doing at home yeah. during and this how period? will it have changed attitudes, like both both among citizens or participants in the economy and and indeed politicians. But I think the big theoretical point I want to emphasise is that the slowdown is only bad if you if you can't get if if you need to work to get enough to live on. Right, the slowdown needn't be. If you've got a lot of wealth and it's growing slowly, you wouldn't necessarily care, right? I mean, um, right. It, it's accessing it that's the problem. So all this talk of the slowdown and wage stagnation is very much presupposing that we need to keep economic growth going and we need to get our share of wealth, most of us, by working. And, and it's not clear that those, that those more suppressed premises are are correct. Um, and you know, the, the defense of basic income will is starting to invoke. In, invoke this angle a bit a bit more and um, who knows maybe maybe we'll come out of the whole pandemic thing saying yeah you know maybe maybe the time's come in australia to just share the wealth a bit and, and mm-hmm. not worry too much about growth because we worry about growth because we worry about jobs and unemployment but if we've got off that if we've stopped requiring that everyone does that which is what the welfare state does you know you've got to prove you're trying to find work the whole time just to get you know, continued um, payments, if we can get off that, we'll have a very different attitude towards slow growth and, and stagnation. There'll still be the point about, you know, we still want these frontiers of technology to progress. But frankly, trying to get everyone into work, any kind of work at all, isn't really what's going to make the difference to whether we get a corona vaccine. You know, pushing everyone to work in fast food restaurants or whatever it might be that, you know, the unemployed have been made to do is not going to have that effect. So what do you think about the, the, the bullshit jobs, yeah. you know, uh, hypothesis or theory, I guess? Or maybe it's just a fact. Um, this is actually related to this, this well, what's sometimes called the fetishism of work, right? The idea that everyone should have a job. Um, uh, so you're talking about the David Graeber thing, which is um, based on a, on a sort of um, study he did where he got, he got people to literally just email him if they hated their job and tell him why they hated it. <laughs> and um, of course, this raises the question about you never heard from the people who did like their job, <laughs> you know, which there might be quite a few. Um, but, right. but yeah, it's a thing. Uh, the idea of, of, of bullshit jobs, well, it's actually a, a bunch of different things at once, right? You've got a bullshit job if it satisfies at least one of several criteria of sort of 
bullshitness. Right? Um, but it's, it's to do with having a sort of white collar job that's a bit pointless, right? That's just sort of going, going through the motions of something to make yourself look productive or to make your superior look productive or important or to kind of fix, you know, make little running repairs on a system that could just be designed better in the first place. Um, you know, so from, I mean, I'm going to, I know higher education better than any other job, but, you know, there'll be some software that's 20 years old and it keeps breaking down and I have to keep emailing some person to go in and fix it. And this poor person, that's just sort of all they're doing, going in and fixing this system that could just be kind of start you know, redesigned in ways that didn't have this problem. And that's very, very, David Graeber thinks is very, very demeaning. Well, not demeaning, he calls it psychologically violent, I think is the, the phrase he uses. And there are parallels here with Karl Marx, right? Because Marx was all yeah. about, you know... This is about the alienation. Absolutely, point. alienated labour, which again, in Marx, is more than one thing, right? But the idea, that, to, to quote directly, the idea that the worker is a mere appendage of the machine, right? the idea that you're just sort of going through these motions because you're, in, you're a cog in the machine, almost literally, although that's another metaphor. But um, yeah, the, the idea is that you, you as an individual, are not really producing anything meaningful. Now, for Marx, that wasn't because there was no production. It's just because the machine is such that your role in it is the same as any other worker who got plugged in. Right? It's, sort of, it's a comment on an industrial revolution style production line labor, right? where you just stand on a product. You know, maybe you, you help, help make cars and you just drill one wing mirror into every car that comes past. That's all you ever mm-hmm. Right? It's very productive. It's just unpleasant. The, mm-hmm. the, the flip in Graeber's thing is that it's not even productive now, really. It's, it's just kind of going through the motions to make it look like something's been done when, when sort of either, either nothing's been done or what's been done need, didn't need to get done or, or, or could have got done more efficiently if someone just took the trouble to redesign it. Yeah, and I think that this is interesting because in this later period from the 70s onward, you know, you could argue we've seen, you know, a big blow up in, in certain you know, areas. There seems to be a lot more administrators in a lot more places than there, there were before. Um, and you know, the financial sector is, is seemingly much larger than it was before. From what I understand, I could be wrong about that. I don't have the numbers on it, but, um, it, it, you know, those are the kinds of jobs where you could imagine people being given, given sort of menial tasks that aren't really doing much of anything. They just sort of look like they're doing something. Yeah, well, Graeber's got this idea about what he, I think he calls it corporate. If he doesn't call it corporate feudalism, other people do, right? Um, and the idea, so under original feudalism, you had a sort of social, you know, the monarchs and the nobles, and they wanted to surround themselves with sort of, you know, garishly dressed servants and armies and, you know, wanted to have a lot of people under them to look good. Um, and that's sort of how they compared, that's how they competed with each other for status. Um, in fact, Adam Smith talks about this. He talks about this is why we should tax luxury goods because they're just this pointless, well, positional, positional good, this competition amongst the wealthy to look, look better, so we should tax that. But Graeber and others think that, look, the, 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 the modern, the contemporary sort of senior executive wants to, that they, they sort of rate their status. I'm not saying this is true, by the way. This is, this is the hypothesis, is that they all rate their status according to how many, how many underlings they have, for want of a better way of putting it. And, you know, the, the, the top CEO does that, but so does the person underneath them because they've got underlings too, right? And everyone just wants to have more and more underlings. So they create more jobs for the sake of having someone underneath them. But of course, that means the job probably doesn't need to exist. Hence, they have to concoct some kind of process to make it look like it's important. Hence, it's a, it's a bullshit job, right? Where someone's just kind of 
you know, constantly revising some document or, or, you know, sending out emails that don't need to get sent and all that kind of stuff. So that's one explanation for why there's been this rise in sort of white collar, relatively low level administration. I should say, just to bring a bit of balance to this, that there's, there's room for pushback against this. I mean, a lot of institutions now have just got to respond to more regulation than they used to, right? I mean, which is some, in some ways a good thing. Um, in the 60s and 70s, for example, not a lot of, of attention was being paid to, you know, was there much workplace bullying? Was there, you know, was there child abuse in children's homes? All this kind of stuff. And it may be that now we're just getting a little bit more careful about keeping an eye on, on you know, the well-being of vulnerable people. And that's going to create, you know, that, that's going to involve administration, right? So, the, you know, the university takes very seriously, Melbourne University and indeed other universities take very seriously, take more seriously than they used to, uh, student well-being and, and the position of vulnerable students. And that's arguably something that they really should have been doing for a long time. But because they've only started doing it recently, there's, there's, only, you know, there's been more administration created as a result. So we just want to be a little bit careful. It might still be true, right, that the senior people want to have underlings, but sometimes, sometimes that can, either that can coincide with something good, or maybe that's not even what they want. Maybe they just actually, the senior people just want to take care of some of these things in ways that they didn't used to. So there's, you know, there's room for a bit of back and forth on this. But it is alienated labour 21st century stuff, that's for sure. When, when, when bullshit jobs occur, that's kind of what they are. The, the, the graver things are kind of a Marxist thing updated for the nature of white collar, sat at a computer screen kind of work. Yeah, yep. Looping back around to the 60s point again, what do you think happened in that post-war period? If we flip it around and we say, instead of looking at, you know, what happened afterwards as the outlier, given that, you know, sort of before and after look more similar than different in a lot of ways. What was unique about that period? You know, wealth inequality has been the norm throughout human history. Yeah, well, well, the, 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 the Thomas Piketty line from a few years ago is that wealth inequality was always there, but when wages were growing, people could catch up a bit with the people who just had the wealth. And when wages stagnate, having the wealth, you know, you, you, being born with wealth is, is more important than it used to be because if you're not, there's not so much you can do in the labor market to catch up. That's a, and again, there's, there's, that invites parallels with feudalism. What went wrong? Well, again, there's, you know, this is a really, really big question. Or well, what went wrong, you know, what, what changed? Um, there's a few, a few factors that, are, that in my mind are quite, are quite important. And one is the, um, just the tendency for labor markets to go more towards this sort of winner takes all structure. Okay. Whereby, you know, so take the entertainment industry. You go back to the, the 40s and the 50s, there's still loads of people going to theaters who didn't own TV. And there was a, there's an example in the book we use about comedians, stand up comedians in the UK and probably in most countries. They just go around telling the same jokes at a different theater for years. They, I mean, yeah. that's alienated labor, right, for a start, but um, it, it was something they, they could do, and lots of them could do it, because, you know, it, there are so many theaters in the country, and each comedian can sort of take their turn, but once you've got TV, that's not the case, you're going to get one, some very small number of very good comedians who can keep thinking of new jokes, like, you know, every, every week or whatever, and they're going to, they're going to hoover up all the market share. Um, yep. Similarly for professional sports, right, um, you know, um, Sports like soccer, they were globally popular in the 50s and 60s, 
or at least they were popular in Europe and, and Latin America. And you know, hundreds of thousands of people would go out to the stadium to watch. But once there's TV, people, that, that same number of people, let's say, are watching fewer games. And so you don't need as many top footballers. And because the advertising industries, you know, uh, started interacting with television, the money going to those players is immense. And that's why the top athletes, in, at least in sports like soccer with big television audiences, earn staggering amounts when the top footballers in the 50s and 60s earn probably about the same as a university lecturer. Mm-hmm. Fancy that. Um, yeah. uh, so there's those kinds of factors, right? There's, there's ways in which you know, labor markets have become more polarized, such that there are, there are new elite professions where you know, massive salaries exist, which didn't before, but you know, an ebbing away of the kind of middle ground, perhaps. Uh, and this is what some people predict. They think that automation is going to destroy skilled work. This is a little different thing from the, the polar. This is a different thing from the audience concentration effect. This is a different thing from what television did. But there's a thought that, you know, automation is going to take away skilled work and, and, you know, either make people unemployed or doing menial work for very little money, whilst creating a kind of elite of people who can kind of enhance what the machines do. So a bit, a bit like, pilot, a bit like yeah. pilots and surgeons who all work with machines very sophisticated machines, but who enhance what the machines can do. Or in, in some cases, the machines can't do it on their own. It takes you know, a small number of very, very uh, skilled people to, to do that. So that, that's, that's maybe one factor has been the role of automation in sort of hollowing out some of the kind of middle, middle ground of the labor market. But you know, then again, it, it's not obvious that that's right. I mean, automation is automation. David Ricardo had it right back in, back in the, you know, back in the, um, the 19th century, that automation will destroy jobs, but it will also create jobs. And most of the well-paying jobs now actually depend, you know, as I've said, they do actually depend on machines. So the, the sort of, the, 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 there is an opposite side of the argument to the, the sort of the more pessimistic Piketty argument, which is say, you know, like the Steven Pinker argument, okay, which is, you know, yeah, wealth inequality, from the you know sort of the seventies onwards, is it's been increasing, but uh, within Western countries, but globally, it's been decreasing. And really, what's going on here is that you know the the markets are just distributing the wealth equitably across the globe because of globalization. And so, really, there's nothing to see here. There's nothing really to be concerned about. Um, you know, neoliberalism is doing just fine, and. Uh, you know, we're really at the high watermark of human civilization and the water's still going up, you know. Um, and, you know, maybe also we're not thinking about how great technology is. You know, maybe technology isn't obviously just like a car. You know, it's it's just so much better than a car or a plane or any or an regular electric appliance. You get, can get so much out of it. You can, you know teach yourself on it you can get you know levels of entertainment on it that were never possible before you can do all the old things like you know reading books but you can also play video games you can watch television shows um you know it's enabling whole new forms of you know you know doing you know art and other things what how do you respond to that? That seems to me to be partly correct, but not, it seems to miss something. Right. Well, um, the globalization thing, for example, you know, there's some truth. Wealth inequality globally, whatever the state of wealth inequality, there's plenty of people in, in 
developing countries, particularly places like China, who, who are wealthier than they used to be, at least according to conventional metrics, um, you know, which will leave some things out, like you know, the effects of pollution. Um, and you know, in, in some respects, the, the, the Western countries, for want of a better word, they just had to give up a bit of their privilege, um, you know, in, in terms of not being the only developed countries anymore. Um, unfortunately, that the, the giving up of the privilege has really sort of fallen on the sort of middle and, and, and lower you know, and working classes rather than on the elites. But nonetheless, yeah. if you take a sort of global view, it's, it's not obvious that, that you can really be too unhappy about, you know, people coming out of poverty in, in very large numbers in, in places like China and, and, and to some extent India. Um, now, uh, and you, you also mentioned that a lot of stuff has got cheaper. Than it used to and easier to access so you know when i'm talking to students i give the example of you know cds right if you want when i was a yeah. when i was a teenager and you wanted to listen to some music you had to go out and pay well it would have been about 14 pounds i mean in, in today's money in, in australian dollars it, it would have been a, quite a lot just to get 10 songs on a cd but now you just go yeah. online and it's free it's almost free yeah it's like to. you know for students spotify is like six dollars yeah, it's ridiculous compared to how i had it oh my god um and you know and you go back further i mean you go back far enough if you want to listen to music you have to pay someone to play it and they probably weren't very good <laughs> i mean again this winner takes all market we've now all got access to the best musicians whereas before recording technology mm -hmm. you just had to go and find whoever could like, yeah you get a local jazz bar yeah or something. if that if that um and uh so stuff, stuff is, there does seem to be this enduring tendency for high quality stuff just to get cheaper, depending on, depending on the industry, of course. I mean, entertainment's maybe a special case because it's one of these industries that's really um, taken a lot from the development of communications technology. I mean, compare it with something like healthcare and you don't, you don't, you know, there's plenty of people who can't access good healthcare uh, without paying a lot of money. So we want to be a bit careful. But yeah, there are these sort of, when you take a sort of global view, there are these, uh, positive tendencies and we don't want to I guess we don't want to lose that um, but of course as things change there are there are people who who lose out right I mean and this is a point made about trade especially which is a large part of globalization you know if, if the jobs if the, in, if the if the car making industry packs up in you know in in, in, in Melbourne or Geelong or wherever it is and, and goes to South Korea or something or Thailand that might mean that cars end up being cheaper and maybe a bit better but that's that small beer for the people who've lost out right and you see this repeatedly in, in other countries you see it in in england where i grew up the coal mining industry packed up and people said oh it's progress you know cheaper coal from ours this means nothing to the people who, who, who lose out unless something is done to help them you see the same thing now in the u.s with the decline of well so it's been a long slow decline really of manufacturing in, in places like the midwest um so mm -hmm. you know there are these and it, it destroys communities. Entirely. It certainly can do. Yeah, it certainly can do. And, and you know, there's all this enthusiasm. I mean, you mentioned neoliberalism. I'm a little bit, I'm a li I would say. Um, it's one of those words. Yeah, it is a little bit. But I would say, <laughs> let's just say enthusiasm for trade that's preoccupied with the kind of global macro effects often mm. involves overlooking, you know, the, the local effects um, in, in particular locations or, you know, or just being dismissive of them. In ways that's basically unjust i mean yeah we, we we do want the benefits of globalization but it's gonna just because there's this net overall benefit it doesn't mean that there aren't pockets of quite serious harm that arguably some something should be be done about and 
I mean, one view is one one fashionable view is that well, this shows we need a bit of socialism, right? We need we need the state to take more control. That's one way of arguing for socialism. But you know, another another problem is that from a Adam Smith sort of sort of view, from a, a pro market point of view, what we might want is to create more opportunities for the people who've who've lost out. Um, and you know, one one problem in the United States is it's actually very hard to move locations because you cross a state border and all all of the all of the rules about what job you can do and what kind of licenses you need change. So there are, mm -hmm. there are, you know, maybe we do need redistribution uh, of wealth to solve some of these problems, but we might also want to lower barriers to entry for certain new paths in life for people. And, and I don't want to say the second views, you know, should be adopted instead of the first, but it's, it's more easily overlooked because redistribution always springs to mind quite easily because, you know, we're told about the wealth inequalities. We, it's visible to us that there are rich and poor, but the idea that there's a barrier to you know you entering a certain profession because you haven't got the right kind of license or because it's very hard for you to move home and get the kids out of school and get, that's less visible to you know the average person. So I'd, I'd just sort of say say something in favour of taking that perspective a little more seriously. Yeah, okay. I think there is something that you know maybe we haven't give it enough credit to here as well so the critique of you know distributing the income in, in a sort of via government you know without some kind of labor is going to be that you know that the person may not have the you know good habits or you know you know the job having a job might somehow teach them how to manage their money better or, or something along these lines you know i can imagine someone saying something like this you know if you i can i can also see this there's you know there's merit in this argument if you just throw you know a thousand dollars at someone unless they have the right habits that they could just you know piss that money down the toilet essentially mm -hmm. right yeah so one thing you hear from the politicians in australia is that the best form of welfare is a job right which is you know close to the sort of view you're talking about the idea that look keeping someone in work keeps them disciplined teaches them management giving someone money for nothing will have some kind of, won't do that and, and may make them worse off um so a lot we could say about this i mean the, 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 no one seems to think if, if that argument is right people shouldn't be allowed to inherit money because it'll do the same you know mm -hmm. <laughs> it'll do the same thing now yeah. Why, why would we think that universal basic income, money from the, the, the state's revenues, would have this bad effect, but money from your parents wouldn't? What's it's money, right? Um, you know, we could have a long conversation about this. We could talk about ways in which parents might, you know, pass money to children only, only after and during some kind of process of education. But it's not as if the state, the state actually takes more responsibility for educating people in, in many ways than parents. So I'm just, I'm just sceptical that giving someone money will, as you put it, um, cause them to uh, fritter it away and, and squander it. Um, people can do that kind of thing whilst in paid employment. Uh, I think that the classical liberal view, the sort of view that Adam, Adam Smith would have, uh, is associated with, would have said, look, what, what really makes the difference is social norms and attitudes, okay, and, and habits. And, and you know, what, we, what we really want, we shouldn't expect the, the regulation of the market and the redistribution of wealth to be the driver of that. Um, and it ultimately is speculative to say, here's one bit of evidence that I like. When people retire, um, 
in the early years of their retirement, when they're still quite, you know, physically able, they get out, they get out and do stuff. They do charity work. They do the sort of stuff that they wish they could have done when they were stuck having to work full time. Now, that's actually a pretty good bit of evidence because a lot of people do that. And if anything, people who are 10 or 20 years younger would even be even more, you know, physically capable. And look, you'll always be able to find someone. You'll be able to find um, welfare recipients or basic income recipients who muck around and waste it. Just the same as you can find wealthy rich kids who do that, frankly. I actually, I've, I, I don't have the stat for this, though, I, but I have heard someone say that actually they, they've found that unemployed, now this might be, have something to do with the fact that they don't have income in the first place, but that unemployed men, working age, you know, like they, they actually do less charity work than their employed counterparts. Mm-hmm which, you know, would maybe, not necessarily, but potentially call that into question. A it may do, but when you're unemployed under a welfare state, such as we have in Australia, you're under constant pressure to try and find a job. If you were not under that pressure, you might do things differently. And, you know, at the end of the day, this is all comparative, okay? Maybe, you know, universal basic income is going to create some time wasters, freeloaders, and there's a serious question about what you do with someone once you've already given them money and they still mess their life up. But what, what's the cost-benefit analysis compared to the welfare state? I mean, proponents of basic income um, uh, are going to argue with some force that, look, you know, you'll be able to find cases like this, you know, uh, under the status quo without basic income. It's not as if... Yeah. There's this pretense that sometimes that the welfare state sort of keeps everyone honest and does its job well, but it just, it's not obviously true. There's, there's counterexamples on both sides. Um, and, you know, the, the, the debate, you can never really settle these questions until we try and do the thing, which we mm-hmm. might do now that, you know, if coronavirus is, is the biggest shock to the economy and, you know, certainly before, since before either of us were born, um, big shocks change what's politically feasible. They actually give governments a lot more latitude. They make governments less of a sort of slave to their past rhetoric. You had the education minister, you know, he's saying childcare is gonna be free during COVID. He'd earlier said the Labour Party were on a path to communism for making childcare free to people, to some subset of people at a low income. So that's, it's not, it's not as if he's decided he's gonna wear red marks and decided he's now communist. Because <laughs> yeah. it's because, you know, the, the political winds have changed. And so look, we don't really know the answer to these both, both of these kinds of systems, a welfare state system and a basic income system, are going to have downsides. They're going to be downsides um, that are hard to really compare unless you've tried both. But the kinds mm-hmm. of downsides that people perceive with basic income are, are downsides that you see in other walks of life where pe- where someone subsidizes someone else. Yeah. And I mean, I think the real virtue of the of the basic income system is, you know, you're not deciding what goods people are going to get you're not doing a sort of mini command and control economy within certain sectors. So you're going to maintain a kind of price signaling. And also you're not tyrannizing people and tell them, telling them what they ought to do with the resources that you're assigning them. Right. Yes. Which I think, you know, a, a massive benefits uh, that you can argue from for that. Way of extending that reasoning in an Australian context. You know, what we have in Australia is we have this huge country really sparsely populated, you know, by global standards. But, you know, large parts of it are still inhabitable. And yet everyone's trying to squeeze into Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, right? Because that's where the jobs are. Yeah. Um, now, if there was basic income, one of, the, one of the real virtues of basic income that is often, I think, downplayed a bit compared to some of its other 
alleged virtues is that it, it will really enhance freedom of movement. You can go where you want. And in fact, you might well go to the country because it's cheaper there. Um, mm -hmm. It's cheaper there because there's no jobs <laughs> or there's fewer jobs or less well-paid jobs. But it would still, you'd expect it to still be somewhat cheaper under basic income. And you know, this might actually transform the landscape, literally the landscape, the geographical distribution of, of yeah. people and, and capital. And this doesn't get, in Australian context, this is important because we've got these great big overcrowded cities and then we've got this big long gap to these sort of country towns, which you don't see in somewhere like Europe or North America. Um, and it, you know, this could really be a good thing for, for Australia. I'm being speculative, but it's something, it's something I'd like to see discussed a bit more. A bit more. No, no, I think that's a really good point. And it's, it's even, it's confusing that it's, it's still going on. You know, it's not like the situation is getting better, but you would have thought, oh, because of the internet, it matters less that you're right next to each other. And perhaps this is going to be another thing that comes out of this COVID situation is people are going to be more used to using, you know, remote technologies like Zoom. Yeah. And they're going to feel less like they need to be next to everybody else in the financial hub of, of you know, whatever major city it is. Yes, yeah, so I, th I think that's right. And, you know, there are already benefits from the enhanced communications technology and use of these technologies is going to be more normalized uh, coming out of the pandemic. But, you know, proponents of basic income are still going to say there's no substitute for not actually needing a job. <laughs> um, of course, you're free to, you know. You're free to get a job. I mean, a lot of people who receive basic income will still want jobs, but they'll have they'll have that bit of freedom to take a bit of time out of the labour market, go try living somewhere else, and you know that that could that could have all sorts of beneficial effects, um, as well as being beneficial for the the individuals uh, concerned. So, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about where price signalling goes wrong as well. I think that could be an interesting area. Um, what do you think about that and what role do taxes and, and regulations play in a, in a healthy system? Right. Well, it might be very, it might be good to very quickly rehearse the, the, the argument in Hayek, right, in just a few sentences, which is that the price of something tells you how scarce it is and how much people want it, right? So when something's expensive, as long as you don't manipulate the prices, the government says, look, charge what you like. When something gets expensive, that's valuable information for people to produce more of it. And for people who don't really need it to, to not buy it and, and, and then someone else can buy it. And the example give, discussed in the textbook is, is um, ice for refrigeration purposes after a hurricane. Right? Hurricane knocks out the power and the people who've got diabetes need to keep their medication cool. And the ice gets really expensive, but that means that you know, the diabetics can buy it because the sort of beer drinkers aren't going to bother. And someone else is going to respond to that price signal and produce more ice and, and get the supply back up. But the law this got some really heated tutorial discussions. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it does, so. and I, you know that's that's sort of the idea, right? But you know, this mm -hmm. example might be quite a red herring, or this example suits the Hayekian argument because ice is the kind of thing that. So, in the first place, there are some people who really, really need it. The small minority who've got diabetes, let's say, and there's a whole load of people who sort of don't really need it but kind of want it, but will not buy it if the price goes up. The beer drinkers, yeah. Uh, and so there's that feature. There's also the feature that it's, it is actually relatively easy for people to get into the market and make more ice. Okay, so they've just got to drive it from wherever they can find a freezer into the affected, you know, geographic area. So that example really sort of helps make the point that the price signal has a good effect. But not all goods and services are like ice. So you might, well, we probably do remember when this pandemic got going, everyone went and the toilet paper went 
paper. <laughs> yeah. now, 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 toilet paper is not even ex- it's not expensive, right? So no one was no one really, if the the price of toilet paper had been cracked to I don't know fifty dollars a roll or something, people would have held back a bit and it would have preserved the supply. But it's a mm-hmm. tricky case because on the one hand, it, there isn't this differential between people who use toilet paper because they really need it and people who just sort of use it for something frivolous. Everyone kind of uses it mm-hmm. for the same thing. Um, so you don't have that, that, that feature of the example. And also, it, it ter- the reason toilet paper disappeared from the shelves is because it's a really big item. It's the biggest item you normally, if you've got a family of four like me, it's the biggest thing in the shopping cart, right? It's not the most, the most important thing might be other stuff, but it's hard for supermarkets to keep large supplies of toilet paper on the shelf, hard for truck to mm-hmm. fill a truck and bring it out. You know, it's, it's, so it's unlike ice in that the, the supply can quickly respond to the, the spike in, in um, you know, the spike in the price. So actually goods and services really vary in terms of how consumers are gonna behave you know, the, a rising price won't always sort of sift the wheat from the chaff in terms of, you know, it won't always um, force out a bunch of consumers who don't really need it. And it won't always be such that other producers can quickly get into the game. So, you know, what, what's true for ice is not really true for toilet paper. So we've just got to be a bit careful about um, how, how far we think this argument can take us. Now, what someone like Hayek will still suggest is that None of this is any reason to think that the government has got access to special information about who needs toilet paper. Right, right. So this isn't an argument for socialism, or this is an argument for the socialist idea of don't let the market regulate, don't let the market distribute things, have central government do it, because Mm -hmm. although it's true that the market is not going to work as quickly for some goods and services than others, it's probably still going to work better than, than, than government. Maybe yeah. toilet papers. Maybe maybe you could have a bureaucrat sit down and work out. Oh, yeah, yes, yes, yes. We're going to deliver everybody, you know, four rolls yeah, of toilet paper. Maybe, a maybe week. it could be done, but but you know the point. Is- but 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 the, you know, I mean, then again, someone might accidentally, you know, they might get wet, or you you might forget where you left them, and That's then right. you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the, the but, but the point, you know, to answer your question, price signals it's clear that they do send a certain kind of signal, but how quickly that signal gets responded to and how effective the response is in sort of ensuring that who needs the stuff gets it. That's, that's a bit more up for debate than some of these examples might suggest, but that's why it's good to discuss these things. And one of the things I like teaching this material is, you know, every once in a while you get an event like toilet paper that sort of enhances the discussion, but also everyone who comes to the class has got their own experiences and got their own examples and, you know, one, one thing that, that Smith and Hayek, if this is sort of parallel with the point that the government doesn't know everything, because like, everyone on the ground sort of does know something um, that other people have, perhaps don't know, and the point is to listen to each other. Yeah, yeah. So there's this confusing view that some people seem to have um, that, you know, you, you need to be educated in order to, for the, you know, the economy to operate, but that, that's not true. You just need to know what you want. <laughs> then- when it comes to the... Con- when it it comes to things like you know toilet paper and ice you can you it gets a little bit someone's got to make a decision about the cost of borrowing right and and someone's got to make a decision you know about about how to design the tax system and actually that does take a lot of the government this is this goes back to the point about you know free market being a misnomer as if the market just has this kind of 
as if the market's like the, the force, a natural force like gravity and government just gets in the way. Well, government sometimes gets in the way, which is arguably what happens when it stipulates prices for, you know, bags of ice. But government actually makes the market happen as we know it by making decisions about, you know, um, infrastructure, the money supply, all these things that are involve coercive law and require taxation, but aren't really ways of interfering with the market. They're really more ways of making cooperation more more possible. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. There's another thing that often gets brought up in, in these conversations about price signaling, which is, you know, this idea of, you know, externalities, you know, there's a transaction, but really there's another hidden transaction that's going on, which is the two people involved in the transaction are somehow screwing over some other group of people. They're not telling them that they should really be involved in the transaction, right? This is sort of, so the idea here is, you know, maybe they're making some deal, but, you know, this company's polluting the local river. And so really the whole community should, you know, is implicated in this transaction, but, you know, they're sort of all getting uh, money taken away from them in some sense. Yeah. So generally speaking, transactions occur between, you know, consenting parties, let's say, but there are externalities by way of costs and benefits incurred in a sort of involuntary way by, by third parties, right, who, who may not be expecting them or prepared for them. And in fact, as I... My, my neighbor has transacted with some tradies to get their um, kitchen renovated. And that's created a lot of noise over the last few days in my apartment, which has made it hard for me to record. Thankfully, it's not interrupted our conversation. But that's a, mm -hmm. that's a, I was kind of hoping it would interrupt just so we could say, oh, look, there's an externality. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but look, uh, what do we say? Externalities are a problem for anyone who's a proponent of market order, right? Because the the, the original case for capitalism re relies on this idea that, you know, compared to feudalism, this is going to make us all better off. Well, compared to feudalism, yeah, may probably yes, almost certainly yes, it, it has done. But look, there are these downsides that perhaps you didn't get under feudalism when there wasn't just so much industry and transactions going on, right? Um, so the question is, what do you do about, well, one, one strategy is to try and design the tax system so that the cost, the costs of externalities are actually absorbed by the... Um, transacting parties so to if you like convert an externality into a internality it's not a word but that's what the carbon tax did okay the, mm -hmm. the carbon tax was designed to reduce carbon emissions in a, in a way it's not about getting someone else to absorb the cost of those emissions right it's is to get someone else to absorb a cost when they make an emission so that they don't make the emission and so they don't have to absorb the cost right so it's, it's not it's a bit more complicated than just transferring the cost over, but that's you know, taxes on certain kinds of damaging. Although, I mean, if you could perfectly price in the cost, then maybe you would want to do that, right? Like, I mean, the problem is people will have some degree of difficulty telling what, you know, the exact damage of emitting this much CO2 is going to be in the future. But ideally, you know, if it was perfectly priced in, then you know, the dynamics of the market might work in a way that makes sense well, in that situation. One, one view is that, look, even though it might be very difficult to, to figure out what sort of uh, cost you should impose on someone making the externality, putting that in place will encourage the, the market, it's almost like a price signal, will encourage the development of some alternative transaction that doesn't, because typically an externality mm -hmm. is not the point of the transaction. 
right? People don't yeah. don't fill their car with petrol and drive it in order to live. That's just not what people are doing. So, yeah. um, you know, the, the thought is that it's not it's not a tax on the activity. It's an, a, a tax on the activity when it generates the externality. So, um, a carbon tax would have been an incentive to people for um, the market to to produce more green energy solutions. Yeah. Um, and you know that that's not to be that's not to be scoffed at. That 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 it, it would create that incentive. It doesn't mean it's easy for the incentive mm-hmm. to be responded to, but um, more likely to be responded to with the carbon tax than without it. That's for sure. Yeah, there was one other thing I, I forgot to talk about before when we were going down this this you know the, the path of talking about what went wrong, uh, you know, uh, after the early seventies, which is there's there also is this question about planned obsolescence and, and, and you know that we don't have any reasonable incentive for companies to just shut themselves down once they've solved a particular problem and and that seems to me to be one of the biggest flaws in our current mm-hmm. system right you want to be able to incentivize people to solve a problem and, and then it, it you know it's done Yes. So there's an argument for socialism here, right? Under capitalism or, or, you know, any approximation of it, companies will go out, will be victims of their own success, right? If they produce something that's really good, such that the customer's kind of permanently satisfied, they won't come back to buy anything else. Um, and so you see with, you know, particularly electrical goods, they, they kind of, they're, they're built to break. Um, they may break in various ways, but they're all designed carefully so that the customer comes back for more. And you compare that. So there was a documentary Called the light bulb conspiracy, which is, is really worth watching about this. And one, one of the many examples in that documentary is of these refrigerators built in Eastern Europe, built in East Germany in the 1980s, and they still work. And they, mm-hmm. they, they, well, they worked when the documentary was made, which was less than 10 years ago. So, and there was the there's a an a hun, over a hundred year old light bulb in a uh, fire department in in a town in the United States as well. Yes, because light bulbs didn't yeah. used to break. That was just the manufacturers thought they'd better make them breakable, otherwise they would run out of customers. So there's this argument for socialism that, you know, because businesses are not having to sort of, there aren't, there aren't really businesses under socialism, it's just, just the state, I suppose. You don't need to make things to break, you can just make them to last. Um, and, you know, these East German fridges are actually testament to that. I don't know how, how energy efficient these fridges are, but nonetheless, they still work, which is impressive. So yeah, that looks like a bit of a flaw in, in um, in the market, right? Um, and yeah, we talk about this in the book, but it's not entirely clear. And it, it is a pain, right? It's a pain for the consumer as well. It's not just about externalities. It's not just about, you know, waste and pollution. It's a pain when when your laptop breaks and you have to buy a new one, when, you know, you, you kind of know it needn't have been designed to break that quickly. Um, and there are some more puzzling examples like fashion and how, you know, I don't really follow fashion, but clothes clothes become obsolescent because they look wrong not because they don't keep you warm anymore right? um yeah. so what to do about this well you know there are, there are different ways of going what well, one view is that oh but there's still progress right yeah so it's a pain when something breaks but when you get the replacement it is better right and you know imagine that if cars in the 1920s had just been the last cars well there'd be less you know they'd be mm-hmm. slower there'd be more pollution they'd be really much more dangerous if you get into a crash uh, and that's just to pick one example. But one, one view is that, look, it's, yeah, it's, it's a pain in the short term, but it drives progress in the long term. That's one view. And sometimes that's probably right. Um, another view is that, look, it's just a bit of an, 
maybe this is a necessary evil. Maybe we just we can't have companies and, and production if we don't have this. But we don't really want to have socialism because of all the other downsides. So it's just some mm. kind of compromise. Maybe we just say to manufacturers, yeah, okay, you can you can build this to break, but you have to just comply with some some conditions that you know mean you the consumers a bit more protected. So you have to things like warranties, right? Maybe the laptop has to last for five years instead of two years or something like that. So one view is that this is actually a necessary evil of capitalism or market order, but it's something we've just got to live with and we can regulate it accordingly. Yeah, a bit like unemployment. I mean, there's always going to be unemployment under capitalism uh, as opposed to socialism, but you might think that look, with the right kind of regulation, the right kind of compensation for people who are unfortunate, we still have a better system overall. But I'm glad you brought this up because this, this goes back to the, the fact that you know the triangle and, and the idea that capitalism is an extreme point in the triangle. You might actually find out that even if you're sort of lean towards capitalism or you think that there are good defenses of market order, very, very hard to, to come up with an argument for why we should completely have, you know, have, have a completely pure system of capitalism because of examples like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, <laughs> I'm not sure if my co-author would have the same view about that, but um, you know, there are, there uh, however far you can go in defending capitalism, you probably can't defend every single bit of it uh, unequivocally. Is he uh, pretty pretty hardcore liber libertarian? Well, the trouble with libertarians or... is they're not really libertarians. Aren't really about capitalism. They're just about freedom. I yeah. mean, libertarians have got no means of really the kind of libertarians you come across in philosophy tend to be of the view that you know private property is really important and contracts really important economic freedoms are really important but they don't really care about competition they don't really have theoretical resources to explain why it's a bad thing that planned obsolescence exists or even much worse stuff like you know naked collusion to, to fix prices i mean that's just companies exercising their property rights who cares they don't really you know they don't really have a way of libertarians don't defend markets they defend individual rights and there's, a, difference. there's mm -hmm. a really big difference, even though that's not immediately obvious to, to, to students or indeed to, to, to professional philosophers a lot of the time. Markets aren't just about freedom, they're about balance between freedom and competition. And that's what makes the pro-capitalist view different from a, a sort of libertarian view, I would say. Okay. So, and the capitalist is leaning more towards the markets. Yeah, capitalism is about finding a balance between freedom and as per the triangle capitalism is about finding a balance between free economic freedom property and contract and competition so that rather than just have markets enrich some people and extract wealth from others markets actually do what they can to promote you know production and innovation and um give people a leg up give people a way out of poverty do something to uh, you know competition is really quite close to the idea of equality of opportunity which is regarded as something, you know, closer to socialism, but it, it, it needn't be. Okay, yeah. So I, I think um, I want to sort of ask you now, we've talked about a lot of the, the issues. I think there's one more thing that, that's sort of big in our current system, which is marketing, but maybe we can leave that for the moment because I want to, you know, it's not obviously bad, but I think, you know, it is a, a way to design, engineer people to have incentives and and, you know, I want things that they might otherwise not care about. But the, leaving that on the side, what do you think should be done? Uh, uh, you know, uh, at this point, 
what do I to change the status quo you know, for the for the better for to make it more ethical? Well, we could get rid of some of the legacies of feudalism. I mean, I mean, you know, my answer this is going to be rather more controversial than the kind of claims you make in the book. But if we tax inherited mm-hmm. wealth, Australia has no tax on inherited wealth. A large, yeah, it's crazy. A large tax on income. Now, why on earth are we taxing income from work more than income you get for nothing? Okay, now, you know, I'm not saying inheritance should be eliminated, but we, we should really begin to tax it. I think that would be good. And that would be a, a pro-capitalist thing, as, as I've explained, and as is you know, fairly easy to explain that a tax on market activity like income is, is, is different, you know, going to be viewed quite differently under any pro-market view from a, a tax on something else. Um, so I think we should do something about that. I think we've got to be a bit more serious about positional competition. And this goes back to things like private education. Although private education is actually in some ways more complex than it looks, it is a problem when you've got parents spending loads and loads of money just to keep up with each other or, to, or so their kids can keep up with each other while some other kids are left behind. I think that needs, I think markets and education are problematic, even if they, again, shouldn't be prohibited. They're, they're problematic under the state quo. Mm-hmm. What do you think about... Um you know, what is often proposed in, in the United States, not quite to a, as radical extent as, you know, I might, but it's a, a, sort of a school choice. Let's say, you know, you, you, you say each kid in the society is going to get X amount of dollars to go towards their education. And that's all we're going to say. Whatever educational institution of whatever description they end up at, that money will go to There's them. pros and cons with that view. I mean, it's, it's one way of trying to put a limit on a positional competition, right? It's one way of sort of capping expenditure. There's something to be said for that. Um, although one way, in some ways, a better way to try and dampen positional competition in the case of education is not to cap it, but to postpone its commencement, right? So don't test kids so early in life. Don't make parents, don't put parents in a situation where they're already wondering about what nursery school to send their kid. The voucher thing's not really about that. The voucher thing's about capping. But if we just if we just didn't really do that much by way of testing and ranking, you know, markets and education exist as a response to the, the ranking of students or the ranking of children. Now, ranking's got to occur sooner or later because at the end of the day, education has to filter people according to what you know who, who's good at what. It doesn't have to start nearly as early as it does. And if it started later, the incentive to spend money would start a bit later. So I actually prefer approaches of that sort. Now, you could combine that with a voucher thing. Um, I, I don't find the voucher thing, I don't regard that as you know necessary or, or the only um, sort of pathway towards improving the status quo in, in a country like Australia. Uh, so you were talking about solutions to you know the, the system before I interrupted you, as it currently sounds, what we can improve. So you had inheritance and, and then you know, removing positional uh, goods, especially with regards to education? Not not removing positional goods, but just taking more seriously the, well, way, yeah, the wasteful sorry. and, you know, unjust tendencies of uncontrolled positional competition, yeah. Um, taxing inheritance would be good. And we've got to get better at housing. Uh, so all of the, a lot of Australian tax law, and, you know, I won't go into the details here, but most of us have heard of negative gearing and, and the ability of, of homeowners to, you know, the way in which there's an incentive for people to own more homes than they're going to live in. That's not a good thing. That, that doesn't produce anything, okay? All it mm-hmm. does, so this, is, this goes back to David Ricardo and Adam Smith and feudalism, right? And the idea that, look, it's problematic when you've got wealthy people extracting wealth from less wealthy people, which is, you know, unjust 
or unfair, but it's also not productive. Not, nothing comes out of this at the other end, okay? Investing in property so you can get money off of renters is being incentivized by the tax system to some degree, but you want people to invest in, in things that are gonna, you want people to invest in, you know, whatever makes the, next, the coronavirus vaccine and things like that. You want people to invest in, in entities that solve problems. Buying up all the housing or buying up more housing than you're gonna live in, it doesn't do that. It doesn't, it, it, it just creates an imbalance whereby wealth moves from one person to another. It, it does not produce anything new. And that's, that. people really haven't got, people are, are negative gearing is controversial because people feel like it's, it's the rich, you know, it's, it's the rich extracting from the poor. But I think in a way, the more, the more classical point, the point that you get in Smith and Ricardo is nothing comes out of this. So why incentivize it? Why incentivize something that creates nothing? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. And so we, we have inheritance position or comp, uh, goods and housing. I'll give you some have more. You, you got, um, yeah, yeah. No, I, I want the, I want the, the new theory, uh, the, the system 2.0, if you've got one. Well, I don't know if I've got a whole, a whole theory apart from like, you know, try and try and change the status quo in ways that promote competition and take away privilege. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what these policies would do. Yeah. Um, take away privilege and take away incentives to waste. You know, positional competitions are largely wasteful. They're not always wasteful, but they have wasteful tendencies. We've got to look carefully at the extent to which they do and, and reduce that. Um, you know, untaxed inheritance is really just going to prop up privilege. A little bit of inheritance might be a good thing. Right? And then I actually go into that in the book yeah. that you mentioned. Um, what else? Yeah, gambling. For heaven's sake, I mean, <laughs> um, Australia is a funny old place, right? It's a world leader on being paternalistic about putting alcohol and tobacco in your body. Uh, and, you know, we could, we, could, we could go back and forth about whether that's, you know, whether Australia's got it right. But it's, it's, it's a world leader on that. But gambling, no, you just don't see any paternalism there. You don't, and you certainly don't see, uh, you know, the government is actually, or the, my understanding is that local state governments get a tax revenue from from gambling, uh, which, which they don't quote me on that perhaps, but uh, I think the incentives, are, the incentives are, are, are different when it comes to local governments with regard to gambling and they ask these other quote unquote vices. And that's a problem. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's more ethical when it's at least going to the government though. So I think the, the lotto in the United States I think the all, all of the the money from that goes towards social programs of some just you know, um, that's a good point that's a good point and you can do things with tax i mean you can the, the word is hypothecation but you can tie certain taxes to certain expenditures in ways that might be morally you know morally significant but if you want a grand theory out of me i think i would suggest this to students or to everyone that a lot of what's in unjust in you know contemporary australia and you know, contemporary a lot of places ask first not whether it would be solved by you know more government control or, or something like socialism maybe it would I'm, I'm not saying that's wrong but ask whether you know can you trace this to some kind of failure of the need to balance freedom and competition um and if an injustice is traceable to that you shouldn't blame it on capitalism you should probably blame it on some kind of quasi-feudalism or, or some kind of hangover from the past or even, even you know, some way in which we're actually reverting to a, a, a feudal history. 
Um, and I would say, you know, economic justice is not the only kind of justice. A, a lot of what Australia needs to talk about, uh, we've had all this controversy lately, well, it's always been there, but it's come to a head about, you know, changing street names, getting rid of statues. The point is, uh, economic justice is not everything. It, it's, a, it's a big part of justice, but, you know, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's not everything. Where yep. there's economic injustice, I want to get people to think more about this balance of freedom of comp- and competition and, and where that fits into things. Although the, the more we lean into a capitalist system, the more economic justice matters relative to other forms because we're taking the power away from politics and sort of distributing it out into the market. In some you sense. might say right. that. Yeah, you might, you might well say that. And, and that's probably going to lead us to conclude that we shouldn't lean in so far that, you know, we, we stop caring about some of the inevitable downsides of market order, like, you know, we talked about planned obsolescence and externalities and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, so I, I was wondering, given that you, you, on this point of thinking about how we could, you know, adjust certain things to maybe enhance competition or, you know, correct for... for things that might be going wrong in the current system. Have you read uh, Radical Markets? At oh, all? The, the, the Whale and Posner. Yeah. Yes. yes I've, I've um, not read it awfully. Any book that was published after the birth of my first child. I'm not sure if that one was. But anyway. Um, yes, I know, I know the basic idea. Yes. What do you think about so that? I take the basic idea to be that whenever you've got property, you declare its value it's its financial value such that you pay mm-hmm. a tax you know, the higher the value you declare the higher the tax you pay but mm-hmm. you have to sell it at that value if someone wants to come along and and buy it yeah you know if i want to hang on to my house uh, well if i've got a house i can either declare it at a low value and not pay any any real tax on it um or declare it at a high you know or and sell it to somebody who wants to come along and buy it or i can declare it at a high value and you know enhance my prospects of hanging on to it but pay more tax accordingly. Do I think it's a and 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 it's set up in such a way that um, you sit in an equilibrium position where it doesn't make sense for you to value it higher than you actually value it or lower than you actually value it. That's the idea. Yeah. Um, and I so what do I think about that? Because um, mm, I really like it. I think it's a very interesting idea. I think I, I quite like it. I think again, it's one of these cases. It's one of these ideas where. The details have not really been worked out and, and the defense of it goes straight for the mm-hmm. big picture what i mean by that is that you know houses and cars and other things they might just be different in interesting ways that count against you know the, this kind of thing right so for example if i own a house but i have two small children who are very you know attached to their local friends and their school and that, is it unfair you know is that does that just mean i should be prepared to pay more tax on the house now that might be a bit unfair you might think or Someone, you know, people have reasons for wanting to stay in a location that that aren't necessarily captured by the financial value of the asset, of an asset like a house. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and you might just think that that's a bit of an externality if, you know, if, if a child has to undergo a dislocation just because their parent wasn't willing to pay, able or willing to pay more tax, it's a bit unfair. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't say that about other assets. You wouldn't say it about an oil painting or something like that. I just think there's, mm-hmm. it's a nice idea, and, and there is, they, they talk about monopoly being everywhere, which is a sort of mm-hmm. interesting claim. You know, mm-hmm. uh, another view is that 
there's only there's only one house like the house that you're in, I suppose. And it, it, in that way, houses are different again from things like cars and other kinds of assets. So I think that there needs to be a bit of sensitivity to um, what kind of assets people are talking about and, and what kind of reasons people might have for that, that bear on what they're going to value them at. Um, but that's about it's about that's about. All. Yeah, I can see where you, you're you're coming from there. Yeah, for sure. It, it it does present this sort of very radical position that you know you you really shouldn't be attached to much of anything that that you own maybe in terms of you know your property uh, and to the extent that you are you just have to be willing to to pay more to keep that stuff if you really want to yes uh, and you know you could maybe have an exclusion for some provision of you know personal goods that is excluded from that but i think that their argument would be is the house has to be included because maybe someone i think the example they give at the start of the book wants to build a railway let's say through and that the whole point is, is this system would allow them to just buy the property at a price that is reasonable without being gouged yeah so it solves certain problems um, mm. that being that being one of them uh but look again there are there are going to be differences between people's reasons for valuing an asset at a certain level. And there are, you know, there's a worry here that you privilege the micro over the macro, right? You, you look, you know, you focus on, well, people shouldn't be so attached to things and maybe, maybe that's right. That raises a question about how social norms have, you know, got us to where we are. And a lot of these analyses, it's easy for them to forget that social norms are a force and they, you know, there's our reasons for valuing certain things and there's just the kind of culture we inhabit and, and how that might, act as a certain kind of barrier to changing things, at least changing them quickly. But the, the privileging of the micro over the macro, well, look, if everyone's moving home all the time, if not all the time, but very, very frequently, that might have bad effects on, on community. It might might just mm -hmm. do things that are harder to anticipate. Um, yeah. You know, and, then there, and there is one of the problems with rental markets, actually, is that poorer people do have to move house an awful lot. And that means it's harder for them to become politically um you know to build a political coalition so take the university of melbourne as a wealthy suburb just just to the west in, in parkville you don't see any yeah. high-rise buildings in parkville even though that yeah. is you know a good place to put a high-rise building it's near it is it's a great the place center yeah. and i know we've talked earlier about it'd be good if not everyone had to crowd into cities but as long as they do you know but the, the residents of parkville are going to be relatively organized because they've all lived there a lot many of them have lived there a long time and it's easy for them to mount cooperative opposition to these kinds of policies and they don't get the high rise in their backyard and everyone's on the you know this sits on, on the freeway commuting out to <laughs> the edge, edge of town but you know that that's not something that poor people poor people have a harder time doing that because they're often bouncing from place to place a bit more and so one wonders whether you know something like the radical markets proposal how would it impact on that kind of thing would it would it be on balance better or worse because of it it's a speculative mm -hmm. point, but one wonders, you know, these things are hard to fit into the analysis. And yeah. You, yeah. I mean, I think that it would perhaps even out the playing field there and that those rich people might not be able to stop people from buying out their property anymore if they didn't want them to, but it might have larger negative effects on this community yeah. or, you know, the communities forming in meaningful ways and, you know, a lot of our lives, perhaps we, we don't want them to be explicitly transactional. 
I think is what you're saying. Um, all that, you know, there are costs to there being lots of transactions all the time. Uh, and, you know, really the point is just that anyone who wants to defend this, this radical market's view is interesting, but if it's defense is to be carried further, some of this work is going to have to get done. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you see in other elements of life, a resistance to transactions just because they, they're, they're, they're exhausting. I mean, the example, yeah, example from Jonathan Wolf's work is, you know, you get on a crowded tram, social norms really go against the idea of someone saying, do you want my seat for $10? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you don't see that, even though there's nothing particularly sacred. It's not like trying to sell a body part or something. I mean, after all, the seat is in a sense already been sold, right? When, when someone bought a ticket and sat on it. Um, but you just don't see that. And, and, and I suppose there's a reason for that. It's hard to pin down exactly what the reason is, but um, a social norm of, of that sort that just says, look, stop buying and selling stuff all the time might be, might be good for us. And you know, maybe, maybe that goes some way towards, that's a challenge that any, any of you that wants to kind of increase um, the tendency for us to buy and sell assets in the name of efficiency or even fairness, these are sort of the sort of things I'd like, you know, you'd want to see them grapple with a bit more. So I'm running up the the end of the, the time that we're, we've allotted here. Um, there, there's one last question that, that I want to ask you and then, you know, I want to say, you know, ask you to, you can, you know, sort of put out whatever you would like to say. And uh, so, so the sort of last thing I think we should touch on, what do you think about the, the newer technologies in terms of, you know, the potential good outcomes and how they could be used to, structure the system in a, in a more ethical way so things like uh something that came up was uh the michael munger book i think and um also cryptocurrencies right so yeah michael munger's interested in these these you know i've got a whatever it is a power drill that sits in my garage for years on end never gets used and that's just in if, even though i had to pay for the whole thing so he thinks that, you know, sharing stuff's just going to be really efficient. Um, he's probably right about a lot of that. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, we've already seen it. We, we have seen a bit of this already in, in the world, um, thanks to communications technology. So that, yeah, that's a force for good in many ways. But there'll be, at the same time, there's this, there's this um, concern about, you know, the digital platforms allowing firms to treat workers as non-employees in ways that might not actually be, you know, um, as attractive from an ethical point of view. So it's going to depend on what, the t what kind of exchanges the technology is going to be facilitating. Right? It's going to be, so there's the short, boring answer is there's going to be good stuff and bad stuff. And we'll just have to work through the cases carefully and, and try and build some kind of theory of you know, how we regulate this kind of stuff accordingly. Cryptocurrency. I don't know a whole lot about cryptocurrency. My, my understanding of it, what I do know about it is limited to um, having read some of the material about the dark web. And the idea that cryptocurrency is going to uh, make illegal you know, transactions in illegal stuff more feasible. And my understanding, again, is that it does that to a certain extent. But because there's no because it's not real currency, you can't really stop the broker from running away, absconding with all the, um, you know, you, you buy if you want to buy something illegal, you, you, you give the cryptocurrency to a third party. Right. And they they mm -hmm. give it to the supplier once you receive the illegal thing. Or, or legal thing, mm -hmm. I suppose. But you know, once this purveyor, once this broker gets successful and starts building up a certain supply that they haven't 
at a certain amount of cryptocurrency, there's incentive for them to run away and just keep it, right? Um, and that would appear to be a limiting factor. That would appear to be what would stop cryptocurrencies from wholly displacing the Australian dollar. <laughs> you know, the Although it's worth mentioning that those markets have functioned reasonably well for illegal goods you know i mean that they the transactions do go through and and drugs get dealt in i believe they do but the the more successful the broker becomes right the the more incentive there is for them to partly because the 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 law enforcement's going to be on their back right have you got any other thoughts on cryptocurrencies it's always been a question i mean i've sort of suggested that we take it for granted that the government controls the money supply right and then and historically countries where you know the government is as sort of a robust and trusted controller of the money supply have done well uh, but you know maybe those times are going to change um, mm-hmm. we'll have to see is there anything we haven't covered that you'd like us to to touch on well there's this one thinker as well in the seem to lab have you come across him yeah he's, he's a current thinker yeah yeah yes yeah, i've yeah. come across him but i don't i don't know a whole lot about i've heard a couple of podcasts um Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a sort of Adam Smith person, I understand. But uh... yeah, I, I find it, he makes a very interesting argument that sort of goes beyond price signaling for the market as well. He argues fundamentally that the system is anti-fragile. He uses this word anti-fragile, which he defines as the opposite of fragility. If you expose an anti-fragile system to disorder then it becomes stronger than it was before. And the sort of mythological analogy is, um, you know, uh, something that's resilient would be like a phoenix, but something that's anti-fragile is like a hydra, you know, two heads grow back. Um, Mm. And so the the idea here is, is that when you try and do central planning, you're setting up a fundamentally fragile system because in, in some way, it is going to be weak to a particular kind of disorder that a distributed network won't be. Um, I I, I mean, that's a bit metaphorical, but I think I get the point. That sounds like one way of trying to further the sort of Smith-Hayek line about spontaneous mm -hmm. order. I wouldn't, I'd have to hear more about how it, how it goes, how it's more than just a metaphor before I'd have, you know, a view about it. But um, yeah, it's, it's good for, it's, it's good for there to be more scholarship on spontaneous order and, yeah, because no, most orders are not completely spontaneous. That's for me. That's one of the take-home messages. I mean, there are things like natural languages, which really did get here without anyone really being in control, and which can't really be improved from the outside, even though some are better than others. Um, and then there are markets, which are a bit more. Well, there's more qualifications. Yeah, I I tend to agree with you there. Although he he takes a fairly radical stance on that position and a very interesting one so i think it's you know obviously and now that you're you're a father i'm sure you've got lots of things uh to do but if you can manage to squeeze in his book there as well that that's worth worthwhile i'd like like to read more of that stuff radical one thing i will say is the academic industry is is its own positional competition and everyone's competing for attention uh and being radical gets you attention Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's sort of, in, especially when it comes to writing books, not so much writing articles because the editors don't care because they've already sold their product to libraries. But book, the, the popular social science, you lose count of the number of books that are changing the supposedly changing the conversation and revolutionizing. 
can't we just, why can't we just have the conversation? <laughs> yeah, I yeah. change it the whole time. And again, one of the nice things about writing a textbook is you don't you're not under this pressure to kind of be the next big thing, um, or, or even the, you know, the second, the, the the next second biggest thing. It's just what what are the questions that are out there and how to best approach them. And it's quite a nice nice thing to write, and hopefully a nice thing to read. Yeah, I think you've got the virtue of. Um you know, t- talking about the ethics of capitalism, people think that's an oxymoron. So that's how you can be instantaneously controversial, but then you come in with a very sort of level We don't want to be controversial. No. We don't, don't want to, yeah. we just want to be, yeah, hopefully just drawing people's attention to things that they're actually already quite well disposed to accepting um, mm-hmm. rather than, you know, trying to change people's minds about, about the deeper issues. So I know we're running up the end of our time here and, you know, you're, you're a busy man, so I, I better let you go. Thank you so oh, much. Josh, thank you. Catch See you up. later.